Reading from Genesis chapter 9, it's page 7 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, I guess uh, page 10 and 11 in the following Jesus Bible. Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. Most of us are familiar with the story of Noah. This is uh, after the flood. The account of the giving of the rainbow as a sign of the covenant. Remember, as I read this, I am reading the very word of God. And it will not return void. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the field with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of the of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. The children are dismissed at this time now to go to children's worship. I think that's what it's called. Can God create uh, a rock so big that he cannot move it? You ever heard one of the questions like that before? Can God create a rock so big that he cannot move it? Move it? I, was, I remember that question was first asked to me. I'd never heard it before, but I was a freshman in college. I was sitting at a cafeteria table with my friend, and this stranger comes up and throws that question out at me. And I guess he, he must have known I was a Christian, probably because of the really cool T-shirt I was wearing. Witness wear, that was me. I was one of those guys. And this dude was one of those dudes. Thought he'd just come and smugly try to destroy my worldview. Can God create a rock so big that he cannot move it? I wasn't prepared for that question, but I was just as much of a jerk as he was. And so I I was a jerk right back at him. I said, yes, he can. He says, "Uh, well, if he can't move it, then I said, well, then then he just moves it. But if if he moves it, he didn't create a rock that he couldn't move. Well, of course he did. He's God. He can do anything he wants. That was just being rhetorical. I didn't help him at all see the gospel in that. But I did annoy him enough that he just walked away. Uh, yeah, it was kind of a win-win. I, I wish I had been prepared for that conversation. It would have been a, a neat thing to engage in. But the truth is that the, the question isn't a logical question, right? It's like saying, can God create a square circle? And of course he can. Can, can God make one plus one equal three? The, the fact that... The fact that something uh, cannot exist doesn't limit God's limitlessness. It defines it. 
Something that God cannot do cannot exist. It just can't be. It defines the fact that God is infinite and limitless. If he can't do it, it can't exist. But I will ask the question a different way. Let me ask this. Can God create a rock that he cannot move? Not a rock so big that he cannot move it. I mean, God is infinite. A rock too big for God to move would have to be bigger than infinity. So that's, that's absurd. But can he create a rock that he cannot move? Well, he can. If after creating it, he decrees, I shall not move it. Because God will not go against his own decrees. Think of it in light of the passage that we're reading today. Can God create a world that he cannot destroy? Well, he did. Well, he, he recreated the world anyway. He recreated a world that he cannot destroy, at least not by flood, because he has decreed not to do so. You can just imagine, if you think about it, how incredibly comforting that must have been to Noah to hear God say that. Noah, who had just seen up close and personally what God is capable of doing if he decrees to do it. He had just seen what God is capable of. Imagine the emotional toil that, that he had gone through. When God tells him to build this ark, and he's in the middle of the plain, nowhere near the water. He's building this ark, and, and, and the, the, just the physical out, outpouring of energy it took, and the, and the, the emotional stress... For 150 years, I think it's 150 or 120 years building this thing. Imagine the ridicule he endured from his neighbors thinking he was an old fool. Maybe even his own family at times wondering, Dad, what are we doing? And he puts up with it and he puts up with it. And then the storms come and you can just imagine the mixed emotion there. Right? Immediately, it starts raining. He may feel a little vindication, right? But how? It didn't, probably didn't take long for that vindicated feeling to be driven out by fear. I mean, think of a man who had never been in a storm as suddenly in a storm like that. Like Katrina times the whole world. If he had had a, his uh, cell phone out looking at the radar map, the whole world would have been red. I mean, imagine how it sounded on that ark with the storm and the wind and the lightning and the tossed about by the waves and the animals probably not enjoying it very much either. Think of how terrifying the ark was and for 150 days for 40 days of, of, of violent storm and then and then even when the storm ceased it continues to rain and be dark and dreary for another 110 days after that the smell of that place <laughs> and then the storm stops the sun comes out but then what you got you're floating on a vast nothingness. The, 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 the go from this dreadful terror, terror to this silence of uh, another 150 days of just waiting, waiting, waiting. And you're not like sailing on the seas. You're just floating. You have no control. And I guess when the ark hits the ground at Mount Ararat, that was probably pretty shocking too. <laughs> That's different. And then they come off the ark to this vast devastation. I mean, think of what the world must have looked like after that. And he comes off and somehow or another he musters up enough faith to offer a sacrifice. And then God speaks. I mean, we, we're not told in scripture that God had done any speaking since he said get on the ark. Till this moment. 
So imagine what it was like when God speaks. And imagine the sight. In all this devastation, after all he's been through, all this turmoil, all this confusion, all this frustration, all this fear. Imagine the sight of that rainbow. The same power, the same power that had been on display for the last 300 uh, days. That power that had led to nothing but, but, but fear and frustration. Now that power is at work to preserve the world instead of destroy it. And, and, and look, God's word is enough. But he didn't leave it at just his word. He also gave Noah this sign, this amazing gift of a sign, a work of grace that ministered to Noah. At last, Noah, there is beauty from all this fear. There is beauty from all this pain and turmoil and rejection and isolation. Now, look, God's word is enough. He could simply say, I will never do this again. And that would be enough because God said it. But he condescends. To love Noah where he needed to be loved. God is spirit. And we're called to worship him in spirit and truth. And and primarily our connection with God is all spiritual. But God loves us and he recognizes that we are physical. We are sensory. We get and we understand and we embrace things through our senses. And God condescends to give us sensory signs. For us to connect with him to remember his promises, to, be, to have our faith built up in his promises, to our, have our confidence encouraged at the truth of his promises to us. And he gives us these signs, and we see them over and over in Scripture, different types of signs. You can think a little later in Genesis to the story of Jacob. It's a miraculous sign that he saw. Now, Jacob, Jacob's not a really likable guy. Have you read his account? I mean, he's not. I mean, he is the kind of guy that only a mother could love. And she did. He was a mama's boy. Spoiled him rotten. And he turned out to be the kind of guy that didn't mind cheating to have his way. And it got so bad that his own brother wanted to kill him. So now he's on the run. He's fleeing. And he's all by himself out in the, the wilderness a long way from home. And God shows up. In a dream he sees this ladder coming down from heaven. With the angels ascending and descending. And God is saying to him... Jacob, you have alienated yourself from everything you've ever been about, but I will not be alienated from you. You're you're still mine, Jacob. I've got you and I've got plans for you. A little bit later, Moses is a similar story. Moses was a guy who was born with a silver spoon. Well, wasn't born with a silver spoon, but he got that silver spoon pretty quick. Raised in the palace, raised with all the accoutrements of royalty. But he's also messed up and he's on the run and he's far from home in a foreign land. He's tending sheep and God comes to him in a burning bush that isn't burning up. And he says, Moses, you're mine. You're still mine and I've got big plans for you. And he gives him this sign of assurance in this burning bush and other signs. He he has the the staff that turns into a serpent, the, the hand that becomes leprous when he sticks it in his cloak. He... And then these signs that are also judgments over Egypt. There, there are judgments on Egypt, but there are also signs to Moses and to the Lord's people that this, is, this Moses is my man of choosing to lead you guys to, to salvation. These signs of justification, of encouragement in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. All these signs and wonders, the healing of people. Look, when someone is healed, that in and of itself is a good 
a good and glorious thing, but it's more than that in Scripture. It's also a sign to all who hear what Jesus is saying, to all who hear the preaching and the teaching of the apostles. There are signs to affirm their message, to say, believe these folks. I am affirming them with what they're able to do, these signs of confirmation of ministry. Signs sometimes in Scripture are just natural things. Natural things that exist that God sets apart and makes a holy purpose to them, makes a sign to us. A well-known example of that is in Genesis 15, the account of uh, Abram, where Abram is, is uh, called out outside by the Lord and he says, look towards the heavens, try and number the stars if you're able. And he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, I kind of like what God does this. He takes what, what already exists. He reminds you that it's already mine. And then he sanctifies it for his special purposes here. Here, Abram is lonely. Abram is also far from home. April, uh, Abram is wandering and wandering. <laughs> he's wandering about and he's wondering if, 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 if these promises of God are possibly true. My, my wife, Sarah, is so old. How could these promises be true? And God gives them this sign, this divine grace to assure him. And no longer will Abram be able to look at the starry sky at night again and simply say, look at the stars. Now the stars speak to Abram. They remind him that he's not alone, that the vastness of his progeny is immeasurable. Never again will he be able to just look up at the night sky without being reminded of God's grace in choosing him. And folks, I tell you, the stars still speak. They speak to us. We are not alone. We are not uh, uh, just out here in this struggling world trying to figure it out. We are a part of a vast, a vast body of believers throughout the generations and for generations to come. When we look up at the vast array of the stars in the heavens at night, it's as if we stand with all of our brothers and sisters throughout the generations professing the Apostles' Creed together, joining our voices with the heavenly host. This is our blessing though. Unlike Abram. Who looked at the sky. And he had to look forward. In desperate hope. That the signs of these stars is true. And we look at the stars. And we are reminded that it's already so. For, for Abram it was a sign of hope. For us it's a reminder of what is already true. We are already a part of this vast family of God. So the next time you look in the night sky, think of Abram that night as he looked up at that vastness and he saw these stars and consider this. Say to yourself that tonight, go outside tonight, look up at the stars and say this to yourself. One of those stars was lit for me. Though when Abram saw it, God had me in mind. God had you in mind when he pointed Abram to those stars. Like Abram, I too am a stranger in this land. This land isn't mine. My hope, my home is in glory. I'm just passing through here. Don't, my hope is not in this. It's not in the, in, the, in the pandemic going away. It's not in who's in office. It's not in my job. It's not in advancement. My hope is not in my physical strength or my beauty. My hope is not in my possessions or my lack of any of that stuff. These stars remind me that my hope is transcendent of all of this. I am a part of an eternal kingdom of God. One of those stars was lit for me. And, and as we place our hope in what is to come, we recognize also that these stars remind us not only of our hope to come, but a purpose that's even in the here and now. The signs that God gives us all throughout Scripture 
tells us about how to think even now. Over in Matthew 6, Christ again gives us other signs. He says, look at the birds. Look at the birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns, and yet your, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Do you, do you think this is only a suggestion? To consider the lilies is only a suggestion. Maybe only a rhetorical idea meant only for the listeners of Christ on that day? Or does he mean this for us? I suggest that Christ has forever sanctified birds and lilies. With his words, he has forever set them apart from their common purposes to to forever serve a noble purpose for those who are in Christ as a sign to remind us of his provision, to focus our faith not on our supposed needs in this world, but to focus our faith on the assured salvation that we already have in the finished work of Christ. I suggest that these words, that because of these words, we can never again look at birds and lilies without considering them. Consider the lilies. That word for consider, I mean, really this idea of considering is what, is what a life of faith is all about. If you'll, you'll ride with me on this for a minute. We don't just see lilies, we consider them. The Greek word I mainly say it because it's fun to say katamantano. Katamantano. You might hear contemplate in that word. Consider them. When you look, it means to learn thoroughly from them. To look deeply into them. To, to, to pull out every bit of meaning and significance and understanding and application that we possibly can. A life of faith is a considered life. Guys, this is really the meat of my sermon here, okay? If, you, or if you're a note taker type... Let me apologize. I'm a terrible note-taking preacher. I don't have three points. That you, I just kind of ramble along here with this stuff. It's one reason I'm an associate pastor. I come in and ramble along so you'll feel glad to get Jason back. But, but this is the meat. If you're going to write anything down, all right, a Christian's life, a life of faith is a considered life. A life of always considering things for what they really are. It's, a life, it's, it's not life merely living on our, our surface experience. But it's going deep. We, we don't merely wade into life. We breathe deep the breath of God. We, we plunge into the depths of his sovereign goodness. Ever since the, the late 80s, I first saw the movie Dead Poet Society. I've liked to use the term suck the marrow out of life. The expression comes from, Walden's on, uh, from Walden by Henry David Thoreau. And if you read Thoreau, he does not mean at all what I mean by it. But I said, all right, I'm going to take Thoreau and I've set him apart for God's holy purposes today. And what Thoreau would, say, Thoreau would say is that basically life is meaningless unless you create meaning by living it to its fullness, right? By living deliberately and intentionally and suck the marrow out of life and you create purpose. And Thoreau, he knows better now. <laughs> he was wrong. No, it, suck the marrow out of life not to create purpose, but because it has purpose. Discover the purpose in all of this. To, to, you imagine you've got this really good piece of chicken. 
And it's so good, and you've eaten all the meat off of it. You've, you've scraped as much, and you just haven't had enough. So you crack open the bones, and you suck the juice from the marrow. You can't get enough of this chicken. That's a funny way to think of what the life of a Christian's life is, eating chicken. But that's what, I'm, that's what I have in mind. God has called us to be marrow suckers of this life. All of life is speaking. All the time, God is up to something. As the stars clearly speak of our identity... In the body of Christ, as, as lilies remind us of God's provision, as the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, as the skies proclaim the works of His hands, all of life speak, and we must become considerers of life. If all of life is speaking, but it falls on deaf hearts, and we're just missing out on the glorious life that we were designed to have. Don't be satisfied to merely smell the meal Peel off the skin, eat the meat, break open the bones, suck the marrow out of life. Life full of expectation that God's up to something glorious. All the time. I'm driving here today, and I'm rehearsing this part of the sermon in my head. And I look on the side of the road, and there's this shredded tire that came off of a tractor trailer. All the way, You've seen it before. It's all the way down the road. And, and usually I just kind of ignore that. Or if I'm in a grumpy mood, I complain about these uh, you know, truck companies putting cheap retreads on the tires and it's dirtying up the road and it's dangerous and all this kind of stuff. But today I'm having this sermon going on in my head. And for some reason, the Lord made me consider that tire. And before you know it, I'm thinking about the fragility of life. I'm thinking about how the, the schemes of man, the things we come up with to try and make things work for us are all fleeting. And what if I had been next to that tire when it came shredding off that? How how How... How vulnerable are we? We live every minute in the, in the providential hand of God protecting us and not our schemes. And before you know it, I am worshiping the Lord because of a shredded tire by the road. This is the life God's called us to do. To be just folks who, who instinctively worship, not just wade. So consider life. Consider your wife's beauty. Just see her beauty. Consider it. Reflect on it. Think, what is God telling me in her beauty today? Your husband's strength, his goofy humor. God's up to something there. Consider it. Consider when your children laugh. Oh, it's more, it's nice on a surface level, but there's a deep significance that God is speaking into your life when you hear your children laugh. Consider your drive to work when that dude cuts you off in traffic. Don't just react with surface emotion. Consider down deep. What, what, what's going on here, God? And before you know it, you're praying for that dude instead of cursing him. It's amazing. Consider your yard, your yard, your beds. Consider your weeds and your briars and your mole crickets. Oh, consider your Virginia buttonweed. I got that in my yard. I can't, kill it. I can't kill it without killing my grass. I'm considering it all right. I'm considering burning it. But anyway, consider, consider the promotion at work. Consider what's going on. Consider... Why do I have such joy and such sense of fulfillment because of this? Is there more going on than just... Consider it. Consider the, the opportunity cost that will come because you have that promotion at work. And, the, and what does it reflect about your values and how are you going to make sure you're... Spend time considering. God is always speaking. Let us be listeners. Let us be folks who live considered lives. Sanctify every moment of your life. Sanctify it. Set it apart. Every moment, every nanosecond, every phenomena, it's all from God. And He's always up to something. 
All right, I think I have time to throw a little lanyap in the sermon here. This is, I mean, it fits the sermon, but it's not, it's, just, it's, it's there as a sign, and I want to throw it in here. It's a little mini sermon within the sermon. All of life speaks, but God has chosen some things to speak with significance. He has set apart some things to be more than just symbolic, but to be covenant signs. Covenant signs to sanctify you by your participation in them. From Exodus 31. Consider this. The Lord God said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, (laughs) whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among the people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. There's a lot of sermons in this passage. No doubt the idea that we should put to death those who break the Sabbath is a little uncomfortable to hear. You're probably expecting me now to explain why we aren't putting you to death if you work on the Sabbath. But I'm not. I would rather you consider it. I'd rather you just wrestle with that a little bit. One time doesn't commit. But more than that, Katamantha know that. Dig deep into that. Do you believe, I mean, do, I mean, do you believe there are biblical grounds for not putting someone to death who has worked on the Sabbath? Can you articulate those grounds? Well, if you can't, should you be concerned? Should you consider it? Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath. I mean, in the law talks about murder and rape and pillaging and all kinds of things. And yet, above all, keep my Sabbaths as a, co- as a covenant forever. Do you know what might constitute dishonoring the Sabbath? Can you articulate biblical understanding of what constitutes dishonoring the Sabbath? Well, if you can't, Should you be concerned about that? Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. I mean, Lord, it's a sermon for another day, and in all likelihood, you've already heard Jason preach it anyway. But it may be something that you want to consider, dig into. The sign of the Sabbath is a covenant sign, and he says that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I've given you this sign to sanctify you, to set you apart from all those folks out there who don't care about the Sabbath. To set you apart so you know you belong to me. You're not like the world. You're sanctified. You're set apart. You're mine. You are the seed of woman, not the seed of the serpent. You're mine. So let us consider these signs that he's given us. And in today's passage, let's consider the rainbow. Let's consider, let's cut the mantaha, this this, this rainbow. Ironically... Uh, a rainbow exists because light gets broken as it goes through drops of rain. Right? A rainbow exists because light is broken. A rainbow occurs when sunlight enters millions of tiny little droplets of rain 
And each drop reflects the, the light back, breaking it apart into its essential colors of the wavelength. Because a, because a rainbow is, uh, is created by light bouncing back to us, uh, you see a rainbow after the storm has passed, when the sun is at your back. How much more does a rainbow speak to us, even than it did Noah? I mean, in the rainbow, Noah saw that the storm had passed. And God had given him this beautiful sign of reassurance, of hope. Now, given what he had gone through emotionally, I'm sure we don't get where, Mo, where Noah was that day, okay? But listen to this. We, we see a different kind of storm that has passed. The rainbow reminds us that, that in that storm, the light of the world was broken. And the result is beauty beyond imagination. You feel, feel the sun at your back and consider the beauty of, 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 of the colors of grace and the colors of mercy and the colors of redemption that comes from the light of the world being broken so that God could give you the sign of this table, the sign of the cross. And you know, it is a bow, by the way. It says... It says, I've placed my bow in the heaven. It, it doesn't say rainbow. I mean, we know it's a rainbow, so we say rainbow. But the, the passage just says bow because it's just the, the Hebrew word, uh, kasheth, which just means bow, like an archer's bow, a weapon. Right? And he's placed it now. So many have likened the rainbow as symbolic to God having hung his bow. After 300 days of pouring out his wrath, he's now hung his bow. Which is, you know, that's an interesting way to look at it. But I, I want you to consider this. I... I, it's just application here. This is not biblical, but I think this is, I see it. I see it. Does the rainbow look like a bow that, that is at rest? I mean, a, a resting rainbow is kind of flattened out, hasn't it? And this, this is, this is a drone bow. Like it's been pulled back. Genesis 8, after the flood, after the flood, they come off the ark and here's what God says. Every intention of man's heart is evil from youth. If you've read the account, you might sound, that might sound similar to what, get, to what God said back in chapter 6. When as a reason for bringing the flood on, he says that every imagination of man's heart is always evil all the time. But then after the flood in chapter 8, God says it's still the case. And only Noah and his family are, earth, are on earth. Noah, the problem that led to... The destruction of everything still exists in your heart. The bow is not at rest. There is still sin that requires a reckoning from the Lord. The bow is not at rest. It's just that it's just that it's aimed somewhere else. It's now aimed at himself. He has turned the bow on himself and his drone. And 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 the that. The one who will pay for sin will no longer be the earth, but Christ himself will. And that leads us to the sign of this table here. We look back at the storm. We remember the deluge of sin that was poured out on Christ. On behalf of his covenant people, the light of the world broken and the beautiful colors of grace and forgiveness pour out for me and you. When, we, when you come to this table each week, and I'm, and I'm so pleased y'all do this each week, but when you come... When you come to this table, be reminded that the storm has passed. 
There is peace at the Lord's table. There is refreshing at the Lord's table. There's strength. There's also holiness at the Lord's table. This is a sanctified table. Set apart. Set apart for God's covenant people. Just like the Sabbath. It is at once the ark and the storm. It is the ark of peace for those who are in Christ. And it is the storm of judgment for those who continue to reject Him. When you come to this table each week... Katamantano. Consider it. Especially if you've been forgetting to Katamantano all week. Consider it when you come here. Now look, here's the, here's the thing. Ordinarily, when I preach, we do communion at the end of the sermon. Which is why this sermon wraps up perfectly at the table. We just go right into it. But now y'all, we've already done communion here. So I've got to figure out how to, how to land this plane. I'll just pray. Would y'all pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for... I thank you that, that to the extent I'm able to katamantano, to consider anything, it is merely a reflection of your consideredness, of your great, beyond our understanding ability to know all things. And Lord, you've given us, by creating us in your image, the ability to know, to understand. We, we, we can think deeply. We can, we can embrace deeply. Lord, I pray that you would make us considered people. That as we go into this world every week, every day, as we, as we meet mundane things and big things, that you would, by your spirit, by the power of your spirit, you would allow us not to be tossed about by the winds and the storms and the waves of just everyday sensory interactions, but that you would give us a spirit full of contemplation, of consideredness, and that we would not be able to do anything but worship in all of life because you're constantly speaking truth to us. Make us those people who just revel in your glorious sovereign goodness for us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.